Welcome to the Bob Harden Show, bringing you news and commentary to keep you informed and enjoying life on the Paradise Coast. And now, here's your host, Bob Harden. Good morning. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning. Johnson's Air Conditioning is Naples' longest established air conditioning company. You can find out more by visiting johnsonsairconditioning.com. Also brought to you by Life in Naples magazine. Be in the know and stay up to date. By reading Life in Naples, you'll find out more by visiting lifeinnaples.net. We have terrific guests for today's show, including William Yateman. He is a research fellow with the Cato Institute. We're talking about some of the bills that have been proposed and what's happening with the uh, uh, Biden administration. We'll visit with uh, Michael Cannon. He is director of health studies at the Cato Institute as well. We'll visit with Lori Reese. Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We'll be talking about what's going on with immigration and Dr. Susan Wilson. This woman is truly a saint. She is uh, the founder of the Tumani Fund. Uh, they do wonderful work in uh, Kangara, in the Kangara region uh, uh, of Africa, and uh, in helping 25,000 orphans. So we'll find about her story and an event that's coming up here on the Paradise Coast. It is April the 23rd, and on this day in 1564, according to tradition, the great English dramatist and poet William Shakespeare was born on Stratford-on-Avon. It was impossible to be certain the exact day uh, that he was born, but church records show that he was baptized on the 26th, and three days was customarily the amount of time to wait before baptizing a newborn. Shakespeare's date of death is conclusively known. It was April the 23rd, exactly 52 years later on his birthday. Although few plays have been performed or analyzed as extensively as the 38 plays ascribed to William Shakespeare, and I say that because there is some question that he wrote them all, but there are a few surviving details about the playwright's uh, life. This dearth of biological information is due primarily to his station in life. He was not a noble, but the son of John Shakespeare, a leather trader and town bailiff, the events of William Shakespeare's early life can only be gleaned from official records, such as baptism and marriage records. He probably attended the grammar school in Stratford, where he would have studied Latin and read classical literature. Now, he got a pretty good edu- education there, though, didn't he? He did not go to university, but at age 18 married Anne Hathaway, who was eight years his senior and pregnant at the time of the marriage. Their first daughter, Susanna, was born six months later, and in 15 15- 85, William and Anne had twins, Hamnet and Judith. Hamnet, uh, Shakespeare's only son, died 11 years later, and Anne Shakespeare outlived her husband, dying in 1623. By 1596, the company that he founded had performed the classic Shakespeare plays Romeo and Juliet, Richard II, A Midsummer Night's Dream. That year, John Shakespeare was granted, and that's his dad, a coat of arms, a testament to his son's growing wealth and fame. In 1597, William Shakespeare brought a large house on Stratford. In 1599, after producing his great historical series, the first and second part of Henry IV and V, he became a partner in the ownership of the Globe Theater. The beginning of the 17th century saw the performance of first of his great tragedies, Hamlet. The next play, The Merry Wives of Windsor, was written at the request of Queen Elizabeth I, who wanted to see another play that included the popular character Falstaff. During the next decade, Shakespeare produced such masterpieces as Othello, King Lear, Macbeth, and The Tempest. In 1609, his sonnets, probably written during the 1590s, were published. Uh, There's 154 of those sonnets, and they marked by the recurring theme of mutability of beauty and the transcendent power of love and art. Shakespeare died in Stratford-on-Avon on April the 23rd, 1616. Today, over 400 years later, his plays are performed at Ridge more than uh, ever before, in a million words written over 20 years, he captured the full range of human emotion and conflicts with a precision that remains sharp today. As his great contemporary, the poet and dramatist uh, Ben Johnson said, he was not of an age, but for all time. Shakespeare, born on this day in 15, what was the year? Let's just check this out. It was 1564. Well, Governor Ron DeSantis and the Seminole Tribe have set to sign off on a sweeping gambling deal that would bring sporting sports betting to Florida. 
and rake in at least $2.5 billion in the state coffers over the next five years, according to sources. Under the agreement, the Seminoles would serve as the state's hub for online sports betting with paramutual operators contracting with the tribe. The Globe uh, Governor's aides uh, said uh, this apparently will be signed off on Friday. So that's good news for the budget, considering that we've got the pandemic that's uh, certainly hurt the uh, state uh, budget or the, the state economy. U.S. equity markets turned sharply lower yesterday after following a report that Biden administration is mulling over an increase in the capital gains tax. The Dow Jones Industrial Average fell 321 points. Biden, according to the Bloomberg, uh, to Bloomberg, is exploring raising the top capital gains rate for individuals earning over a million dollars to between 39.6 and 43.4 percent. The increase would help fund Biden's annual families plan, the details of which are still being ironed out. In economic data, initial jobless claims fell to a coronavirus low of 547,000, better than the 617,000 analysts were expecting. Additionally, existing home sales slid to a seven-month low as record prices and tight inventory held back transactions. Also impacting trade on Thursday was Biden's virtual conference with 40 world leaders, including uh, the president of China, Xi Jinping, where he pledged to lower U.S. greenhouse gas emissions by up to 52% from 2005 levels before the end of the decade. Automakers are among the groups in focus as Biden gets set to unveil his climate actions. Xi Jinping uh, used his appearance Thursday at the Biden administration's Leaders' Summit on Climate to promote his China Belt and Road Initiative, a debt trap program in which China offers predatory loans to developing countries in exchange for help in building infrastructure, just spreading the tentacles of Chinese power. President Joe Biden invited dozens of world leaders to address the virtual summit on the occasion of Earth Day as an unofficial holiday promoting environmentalism and offer proposals to reduce global pollution rates and discuss international programs to slow climate change. What a crock. Anyhow, China is the world's biggest polluter, responsible for 28% of the world's carbon dioxide emissions, that according to the Union of Concerned Scientists. That rate is over twice the amount of carbon emissions at the Uni- in the United States, the world's second largest emitter. Uh, China has boasted that it intends to increase carbon emissions over the next decade and only peak by 2030. That's right, increase, not decrease, as permitted by the climate agreement, the Paris Climate Agreement, while condemning Western nations whose carbon emissions have been steadily declining in the past decade. Uh, I can't, it's just words just don't describe how crazy, with all the crises that we have going on in the world right now, to focus on climate is totally bizarre. Carbon dioxide makes the earth greener. We need carbon dioxide. Carbon is not our enemy. It's our friend. Nobody wants dirty water. Nobody wants dirty air. We need to get the particulates out of uh, the air and make sure that our water is clean. But carbon dioxide is not the enemy. Climate activists dissatisfied with President Biden's climate plan are not so subtly expressing their displeasure as they literally called bullcrap or something like that while dumping cow manure in front of the White House. The demonstration, which began Thursday morning, was being conducted by Extinction Rebellion, an organization that pushes for nonviolent direct action and civil disobedience to pressure government to act justly when it comes to climate and the environment. (laughs) This is just crazy. Net zero by 2030 and other other not-in-my-term-office scams are far too little and far too late, Extinction Rebellion spokesperson said. Biden uh, is punting the crisis to future generations with targets that rely on unproven technology sucking carbon, sucking carbon out of the atmosphere. This is a massive gamble to take when the well-being of the human species, these people think, and the richness of life on Earth is at stake. If he cared, he would set targets that expire when he's still in office. We can't keep waiting. We need change right now. So they dump cow manure in front of the White House a good way to draw attention to their worthy cause. So over the uh, one-third of Americans say they are less likely to drink Coca-Cola following the company's interference in the debate surrounding vote integrity laws passed in the state of Georgia. 
This is a Rasmussen poll conducted between April the 5th, 15th, and 18th. Respondents were asked several questions, including, is it a good idea or a bad idea for corporations to become involved in political controversies? One-third are less likely to drink Coke. I hope corporations are paying attention. We've seen the NBA's uh, audience drop precipitously. We've also seen that in the, NH- uh, the NFL, also in Major League Baseball. Corporations, when are you going to learn that 75 million people are not going to tolerate uh, interference in, uh, in our politics and government? Stay in your lane, corporations. A growing number of uh, American parents are getting together to find ways to block the spread of the quasi-Marxist critical theory, race theory, CRT, in schools where they send their children. They see the doctrine as a culprit in creating a toxic environment and exacerbating problems. And it claims to uh, ameliorate schools officials have been responding with denials or silence. This is just great news. I won't have a chance to complete this story, but it's just another... Uh, it's just another straw. It's a it's a, Marx, a Marxism's reduction of human history to the struggle between bourgeois, and the uh, proletariat. It labels institutions that emerge in a majority white societies as systemically or structurally racist. Total foolishness. This segment of the show brought to you by the good folks at Johnson's Air Conditioning, Naples' longest established air conditioning company. Visit johnsonsairconditioning.com also by life in naples magazine be in the know and stay up to date by reading life in naples the website is lifeinnaples.net coming up william yateman research fellow at the cato institute that and more right here in the bob harden show on the bob harden broadcasting network stay tuned for more of the bob harden show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. I'm Bob Harden, the host of the Bob Harden Show. One of my favorites for breakfast or lunch is Lulabee's Diner, providing great service, fabulous food, and a rockin' good time. Lulabee's Diner is a throwback to the 60s, complete with great music and a fabulous 60s decor. What I like best is a blend of great food, great value, and terrific service. Most of the friendly waitstaff has been part of Lulabee's for years. I enjoy the great choices for breakfast and lunch, and you'll find the menu has everything and anything to satisfy your taste. Lulabee's offers catering, party platters, lunch boxes, and more. Lulabee's Diner will quickly become one of your favorites for breakfast or lunch. No reservations are needed. Check out the website at lulabees.com and stop by Lulabees Diner, open from 8 a.m. until 2 p.m. seven days a week. Lulabees Diner in the Green Tree Shopping Center at the corner of Immokalee and Airport Pulling Roads. Stop by Lulabees Diner for fabulous food and for a forever cool rockin' good time. Did you know St. Matthew's House operates the only emergency homeless shelters in Collier County? St. Matthew's House provided more than 500,000 hot meals to those in need last year, and since 2010, 527 men and women have graduated from the St. Matthew's House Justin's Place Addiction Recovery Program. For over 30 years, St. Matthew's House has provided innovative solutions to fight homelessness, hunger, substance abuse, and poverty in Southwest Florida. And you can help St. Matthew's House in this life-transforming work by patronizing the St. Matthew's House Thrift Stores, Cafe M25, Car Wash and Detailing Center, and award-winning catering operations. For more information, visit stmatthewshouse.org. That's stmatthewshouse.org. St. Matthew's House is a 501c3 not-for-profit organization and does not solicit government funding. to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. It's brought to you in part by Gulf Shore Playhouse, bringing you professional New York-style theater at its very best and now building a new performing arts center in downtown Naples. You can find out more by visiting golfshoreplayhouse.org. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Lori Reese, the research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Right now we have with us William Yateman. He is a research fellow at the Cato Institute. William, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure. 
And uh, William, tell us about the Cato Institute. You bet. Uh, we're a think tank here in Washington, D.C., and we're dedicated to advancing the ideals of a free society at every level of government. Cato.org is the website, very robust website, Cato, C-A-T-O dot org. William, let's talk about what's going on on proposed laws, and uh, let's start off with the infrastructure program. There's been a counteroffer by the GOP, or has there been? <laughs> well, indeed, the, that would be the latest news in this infrastructure, or putative infrastructure package that we've been discussing every Friday, or recent Fridays. Mm-hmm. Um, the GOP, they issued a counteroffer this week. Um, she, uh, Senator Shelley Capito was, was in, I guess, shepherded the counteroffer if she was in charge of the presentation. Um, it, two big differences with the two point, uh, the $2 trillion Biden plan. Um, one, it's about uh, a quarter as big. It's $568 billion, and it focuses on actual physical infrastructure. So as we've noted a number of times, uh, uh, the Biden infrastructure plan considers anything out of the sun to be, quote-unquote, infrastructure. Mm-hmm. The GOP counteroffer is focused on roads, bridges, um, water infrastructure, and they even put broadband in there, which... which um, I'm not sure whether or not it fits under a traditional uh, notion of infrastructure, but uh, so be it. Um, The other big difference with the Biden plan is how it's paid for. So the Biden infrastructure plan, uh, most of the money for that comes from raising the corporate tax rate um, to 28%. The GOP counteroffer, this $568 billion, is paid for primarily with user fees. Mm. The gas tax or electric vehicle tax um, for you know entities that use the roads and whatnot. Um, so that that's sort of the latest development as to where things, uh, how this is going to proceed. It's anyone's guess. Um, the progressives in the Senate and the House of Representatives they rejected the GOP offer outright. They said we're not even going to negotiate with the Republicans. This is an insult. This offer is so low. Hmm. Um, However, the president, um, a few hours later, indicated that he's willing to negotiate with the GOP. Hmm. Um, And that's a a bit of a change. I mean, if your listeners will recall, for the COVID stimulus, the the previous $2 trillion bill that was passed six-odd weeks ago, um, President Biden rejected outright any overtures from Republicans, any negotiation attempts. So he's taking a different pathway with this infrastructure bill. Um, and at the same time, we've got a bipartisan group of senators that is calling for um, uh, Biden and, and, and Senate or congressional Democrats to split their infrastructure pro- uh, proposal. Hmm. And that is to first work on the actual infrastructure projects of infrastructure as it's traditionally understood. Um, and then, to, you know, after that bill is passed with presumably GOP support, then to go on to these more expansive notions of infrastructure. So mm. it, it, at this point, it is entirely unclear how this bill is going to proceed. It's a very fluid situation. Well, it's interesting, first of all, that the president has decided that he'd like to uh, negotiate with the GOP. That indicates to me that he thinks that uh, somehow, some way, the uh filibuster rule is going to hold up uh, because he's got to get it through both houses of Congress. Uh, second of all, you know what's conspicuously absent in this discussion is the power grid. Any, is there, you know, somebody just said that uh, right now that uh, we are in a rock fight with the world uh, when it comes to the uh, to cyber security, in a rock fight, uh, living in a glass house. <laughs> is, is, is there anybody, anything addressed in, in, in that area? Well, shoot, I'll be honest with you, um, cybersecurity is not an area that I'm terribly up to speed on. Now, with respect to electricity infrastructure, that is something I know a thing or two about. Um, That is, I believe, uh, actually a component of uh, the climate package within the Dems' expansive notion of infrastructure, their package, the Biden infrastructure bill. I don't believe it is in the GOP counteroffer. you know, I will say electricity production, generation, and distribution, um, that is heavily a state matter. So it is to the, uh, I am wary of, of um, federalizing these measures. So mm. notwithstanding the potential threats posed by cybersecurity, um, I would hope that Congress, I'll oh, put it this way, that to me sounds like it merits uh, a 
electricity transmission only bill. I mean, yeah. I don't know why they'd have to sweep that under this rubric of, of you know, ever-broadening infrastructure. All right. um, well, thanks for that clarification, William. Uh, the other thing is uh, I would just express that uh, uh, the Internet is a free market Xanadu. I don't know why Congress feels like it needs to stick its toe in uh, something that's working so well, but... Uh, yeah, I guess that's, I don't know how much money they're talking about, but I think the Democrats are talking about $100 million or billion dollars or more. It was. So this, I'm glad you brought that up, because um, this seems to be a bipartisan folly. Yeah. I um, mean, indeed, yeah, the Dems are talking about spending hundreds of billions of dollars on broadband as, as quote-unquote infrastructure. Um, the Republican counterproposal, I think it was $60 billion for mm. broadband. Um, which, which again, raised my eyebrow. I, I thought they had objected to, again, the Democrats' capacious notion of, of quote-unquote, infrastructure um, and then in- inclusion of broadband into, quote-unquote, infrastructure. So I was a bit surprised that the GOP um, was, you know, $60 billion is a lot of money, um, and, and th- that both parties seem to agree that broadband is some sort of pressing concern under an infrastructure rubric. Yeah, crazy. Uh, any comments on the House uh, passed the H.R. 51? That's a uh, D.C. statehood power grab. Uh, that's not going to go anywhere, is it? <laughs> I hope not. Um, you, you hit the nail on the head with power grab. Um, and this is the second time that the Democrats in the House of Representatives have passed a D.C. statehood bill in recent months. That They did so at the tail end of the 116th Congress. They're now in the 117th Congress. The Democrats say this is all about democracy, um, and I can say anecdotally, I live in Washington, D.C. I've lived in Washington, D.C. for 15 years, and I've had school hundreds of neighbors. I mean, I've lived in many locations in Washington, D.C., and I'm a pretty friendly guy. I have never had a conversation with a single resident of Washington, D.C., about the pressing need for statehood. Um, so, uh, you know, it is curious to me how this is, you know, at the national level and yeah. amongst Democrat, uh, Democratic political elites, um, you know, they, they present it in these terms of representation without taxation, uh, yeah. democracy and whatnot. Um, but I can tell you, as a man on the ground, that, that, that there is no such um, swell of political... Uh, no one's talking about it, and there's no... Uh, impetus for it. I mean, so, you know, I, I can, again, I've lived here for 15 years. Yeah. As to where this bill is going, again, you hit the nail on the head, nowhere. Um, it has both political and constitutional roadblocks ahead of it. Uh, yeah. The political roadblock, of course, would be that um, there's no chance that this thing passes in the Senate. Um, it, it couldn't be passed without uh, removing the filibuster and, and uh, Senator Manchin and Senator Sinema in um, Arizona have been quite clear um, that they're not going to jettison the filibuster. So yeah. it's not going to pass the Senate. Um, and the other problem, not just political, is constitutional. Mm-hmm. And uh, I, I could spend, you know, a half hour discussing the many constitutional problems posed yeah. by this effort. Um, I guess the foremost one would be that Congress is one of enumerated powers and they don't have the power um, to do so. You yeah. know, but there are other constitutional inhibitions, Article 1, Section 8, the Enclave Clause, uh, Amendment 23 to the Constitution, um, which apportions to D.C. Uh, electoral votes. Long story short, um, it is not just the political deck that is stacked against this effort. There are many very strong constitutional claims that make it a very long shot that this bill would survive judicial yeah. review in the court. Yeah, William, just genuinely appreciate your clarification on that. Again, it's all about the consolidation of power. William Yabin, Research Fellow at the Cato Institute. I genuinely appreciate your commentary here on the show. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you so much for having me on, Bob. Always a pleasure. All right, coming up, we're going to visit with Michael Cannon. He's also the Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. We're going to do that and more right here on the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network.
Provence Restaurant is a favorite dining destination for many Neapolitans, including Linda and myself. Blue Provence, located in a historic building in the heart of Old Naples at Creighton Cove, offers a mix of French bistro cooking with bold, fresh Floridian flavors. Experience award-winning cuisine at Blue Provence and enjoy one of Florida's most extensive, eclectic, and fun wine cellars. Dining your choice are the popular Eden Bar, the intimate Courtyard Garden, or the beautiful Provencal Caribbean Dining Room. Enjoy a wonderful and memorable evening in a casual and relaxed atmosphere that includes a taste of Provencal hospitality. Blue Provence is open seven days a week, all year round. Visit BlueProvenceNaples.com for reservations, everyday specials, and coming events. That's BlueProvenceNaples.com or call 261-8239. That's 261-8239. Blue Provence French Restaurant in the heart of Old Naples. Golfshore Playhouse is passionately committed to enriching our cultural landscape by producing professional theater to the highest artistic standards and providing unique educational opportunities to folks in a spirit of service, adventure, and excitement. Over the past 15 years, the Playhouse has expanded immensely, outgoing its current facilities. With dreams of expanding even further in order to better serve the community, broaden the economic impact, and strengthen the cultural fabric of our region, it's time to build and move into a new home. A 44,000 square foot state-of-the-art theater and education center will be built on three acres at the corner of First Avenue South and Goodlett Frank Road, allowing Gulf Shore Playhouse to achieve those dreams. To find out more about Gulf Shore Playhouse, this state-of-the-art performing arts center, and about the season's exciting productions, visit golfshoreplayhouse.org. That's golfshoreplayhouse.org. We'll see you at the show. Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host, Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. Hey, I hope you check out Choice Social. It's a new and refreshing social networking platform. You can download the app on choicesocial.us, the website choicesocial.us. Coming up, we're going to be visiting with Dr. Susan Wilson from the To My Knee Fund. Right now we have with us Michael Cannon. He is Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Michael, thank you so much for joining us. Great to be here, Bob. Thank you, Michael. So uh, I heard, I think actually you've shared with me off air that uh, there's some talk now among Democrats they'd like to lower the age for Medicare. That's right. The Wall Street Journal reported that some of them are looking at lowering the eligibility age from 65 to 60. Mm. Bernie Sanders, who is the chairman of the Senate Budget Committee now, says they should do that immediately. There will be lots of grateful seniors if they do that. Presumably, he's trying to tell Democrats, hey, we'll do well at the polls if we give free health care to more people. Yeah. The problem is it's also going to give them low-quality care and drag down the quality of care for everyone, not just Medicare enrollees. Yeah, and uh, it's also, I'm sure, going to just pass on debt to future generations as well. That's right, and they seem completely unconcerned by that. Uh, when you look at all of the, uh, the, the COVID relief packages that uh, aren't about COVID relief uh, and the infra- infrastructure bills where everything is infrastructure, we are just piling uh, hundreds of billions and trillions of dollars of debt onto future generations. And if Congress expands the Medicare program. If Congress does what a lot of folks in the Democratic Party want them to do with regard to Medicaid, which is try to entice the states that haven't implemented the Obamacare Medicaid expansion into implementing it by having the federal government pick up 100% of the cost instead Mm of 90%, which is what the law now says, then we're just going to be heaping even more debt on the future generations. And since healthcare is what one of, if not the fastest growing part of the federal budget. And uh, we, since we can't keep borrowing money like this forever, at some point, Congress is going to hit a budget constraint. Yeah. Whether, it's, whether it's people are going to stop buying uh, U.S.-issued debt uh, and we're not going to be able to borrow or there's going to be some uh, internal political constraint Congress just gets religion and decides it's going to start balancing the budget. At some point, Congress is going to have to 
exercise some spending restraint. And when it does, it's going to have to look at the fastest growing part of the budget. It's going to have to look at healthcare. It's going to have to start narrowing people's access to care. And mm-hmm. the folks who enroll in Medicaid are going to be in the worst position because every time states have to deal with their own budget, balanced budget requirements, every time they run into uh, tough economic times and have to make cuts, where do they go first? They go to the Medicaid program. So we are really putting millions of people, low-income people, in a really vulnerable situation if we have uh, the federal government do even more things to entice people to enroll in the Medicaid program because it's their health care that's going to be on the chopping block first. Yeah, and it's my understanding that the resistance to expanding Medicaid in the states is because of the growing expense to the states that they'd see it by the expansion of Medicaid. Uh, with the government, the federal government picking up 100% of the cost, there would be that, that resistance would fall, fall away. I mean, there'd be no resistance, wouldn't there? I mean, and quite frankly, so it would be inevitable that we'd see, just see the deterioration of health care and the expansion of costs. Everywhere that states have implemented Obamacare's Medicaid expansion, the cost to the state has exceeded projections. Mm-hmm. And the cost to the state is only 10% of the total cost of that expansion, and yet it has exceeded projections, put strain on state budgets, caused states to have to cut Medicaid spending, cut services elsewhere, or raise taxes in order to keep up with those, uh, those costs. And so you're right, the fact that some Democrats in Washington are talking about having the federal government pick up 100% of the cost so the states won't have to pay for any of the expanded benefits themselves. That's really an admission that the Medicaid expansion is much more expensive than advocates have billed it to be, that that cost concern is a real political obstacle at the state level mm-hmm. to uh, those states expanding the program, and that that advocates of Obamacare's Medicaid expansion in Washington want to remove that political obstacle by just keeping paying for that last 10% by uh, heaping that cost onto future generations in the form of more federal debt as well. You know, we could simplify this program so much. I mean, for example, Obamacare, just all these details and requirements for our health insurance, we should just have in my view, catastrophic health care plans uh, with uh, health savings accounts have uh, patient-centric health care, so people are concerned about not only the quality but the cost of care and have some skin in the game. I think that in and of itself, just that simple idea in and of itself, I think would reduce costs substantially. I think it, bears, it always bears repeating, whenever we're talking about Medicare and Medicaid and health reform generally, is that the government has no business Right. providing health care to the elderly. It has no business providing health care even to the poor. And part of the reason that that's true is because if the government were not doing all of these things, the health sector that we would have would look nothing like what we have, this, this dysfunctional monstrosity that we have right now. Yeah. We would have more people who have catastrophic coverage. We have, would have, as you say, more people who are very cost conscious and demanding price competition from healthcare providers and helping to drive prices down so that more and more people can afford it every day. So there are fewer poor people who cannot get the medical care they need. So that number keeps on shrinking and shrinking and shrinking. And so the rest of us, uh, the rest of us are saving so much money on healthcare that we're better able to help those who cannot provide for themselves than the, even the government is doing right now through yeah. these programs. Yeah, Mike. If you want to eliminate unmet need, you've got to do what Bob Harden recommends, which is get the government out of health care and let people control their own health care dollars and decisions. Michael Cannon again, uh, health Director of Health Studies at the Cato Institute. Just genuinely appreciate your commentary on this most important topic. Michael, thank you so much for joining us here on the show. Anytime, Bob. My Take pleasure. Care. Okay. And again, uh, Cato.org is the website, Cato.org. All right, coming up, we're going to be visiting with Lori Reese. She is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. We're going to do that and more right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for 
or of the Bob Harton Show here on the Bob Harton Broadcasting Network. Do you suffer from joint pain in your shoulders, hips, or knees? I was suffering from debilitating pain in my knees. On a referral, I saw Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine. He successfully treated my symptoms and pain for several months. Finally, having exhausted all alternatives for pain management, Dr. Markovich and I agreed that surgery was my best alternative. Dr. Markovich replaced both of my knees in 2006, and I now have full range of motion in both knees, and I have no pain. I now play golf and exercise free of debilitating pain in my knees. Don't suffer needlessly with joint pain. Call orthopedic surgeon Dr. George Markovich with the Institute for Orthopedic Surgery and Sports Medicine at 482-5399. That's 482-5399. He did a great job for me and he'll help you too. You listen to The Bob Harden Show, so why not market your company to our loyal listeners? Ads are played live on each show and then archived so listeners can hear the show and your ad at their convenience. Each advertising package includes a banner on BobHarden.com with a link to your website at no extra charge. Join Lulabee's Diner, Johnson's Air Conditioning, Blue Provence, and many others who advertise on the show. Call me at 598-3889, that's 598-3889, or send an email to BobHarden at Hotmail.com to design an ad program that's just right for your business and your budget. You'll be pleasantly surprised at the cost and the value. Several advertisers have been with me for years. Find out why by calling 598-3889 or send me an email to bobharden at hotmail.com. You'll be glad you did. Welcome back to the Bob Harden Show. And now here's your host... Bob Harden. Thanks so much for joining us here on the show. We're providing you news and commentary rooted in a commitment to individual liberty, personal responsibility, limited government, and the rule of law. Coming up, we're going to visit with Dr. Susan Wilson from Africa. She's uh, representing the To My Knee Fund. She actually founded it. Right now, we have with us Laura Reese. She is a senior research fellow at the Heritage Foundation. Laura, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks for having me on. Always a pleasure. Can you make a comment about the Heritage Foundation and the work that you do? Sure. So uh, we work in policy and do a lot of research on a a host of areas that affect the economy and um, Americans, their jobs, their lives, their families. Um, I specifically focus on homeland security policies and spend a lot of time on uh, immigration in particular. Yeah, well, that was the topic I wanted to talk to you about. Thank you for that. So uh, right now, uh, immigration immigration is just, uh, illegal immigration is just running amok right now. It seems like it's a purposeful activity on the part of this administration. What are your thoughts? Yeah, we, we definitely have a, uh, a crisis and chaos at the border, uh, but also in this new Biden administration. And it started really before uh, Joe Biden came into office, but certainly from his first day going forward. um, He signed several executive orders that basically stopped very effective programs and law enforcement um, solely because Trump's name was associated with it. Mm -hmm. Uh, I think he is now realizing that um, perhaps some of those programs and policies were rather effective and I think they are tacitly trying to get a little bit of control over it, only in the sense that they would like the media off their back. They've tried a media blackout. Hmm. Um, and to get faster and better at how um, they process illegal immigrants into the country. So just in the absence of information, this is what I've made up in my own mind. It looks like a purposeful activity with, a, with the objective of planting uh, immigrants around the United States so that uh, in future elections, they assume that, that these people want to vote for them, and it's a, kind of a stacking the deck for future elections. Yes, it's hard to conclude anything else because um, the, they have, in effect, opened the borders. They have made this country a sanctuary country in that they are not deporting people on the back end. 
and um, they are establishing uh, reception centers, that's, that's their term, at the border to allow people in and to release them around the country. Um, it, it seems like DHS and therefore the American taxpayer is paying for some of this transportation to bus and fly illegal immigrants around the country. And uh, at every turn, he, this president and this administration is putting Americans last and lawful immigrants last. I'm happy you said that. That's because it certainly ap uh, appears that way to me. I understand that not only are they being given bus tickets or, or, or uh, flight tickets, uh, airline tickets, but they're also giving, uh, being given cash in order for when they go there and their destination, in, in most cases, as I understand it, are red states. Yeah, it's, it's um, difficult to know where all they are going right now. Mm. I myself was on a, a flight uh, just a few weeks ago from Dallas to Washington, D.C., and witnessed two seemingly uh, brand-new migrant families board our plane with documents in large lettering saying, I don't speak English, what plane am I supposed to be on, and the itinerary written out for them. Mm. Um, and my first question was, who is paying for that? Um, it, it was shocking, but it seems to be going on every day. And um, Americans, some states are speaking up. Some governors are saying, no, we are not going to take um, these um, transported illegal migrants in our states. Um, but what reminder to folks, it is illegal to knowingly transport and to harbor uh, illegal immigrants. Now, I know our government is... Um, choosy about which immigration laws it decides to enforce or not, but, but our government is now becoming an active participant in human smuggling. Right. I mean, we have these uh, coyotes and uh, gang members uh, that, uh, you know, are basically, uh, I think, in partnership uh, with the Biden administration. Yeah, it's hard to conclude otherwise because... Uh, the government is seeking to reunite families. They um, are encouraging unaccompanied alien children to come into the country. The Secretary of Homeland Security repeatedly states that he will not expel unaccompanied children. And then they are reunited with family members in all parts of the country. So um, the transportation is absolutely a link in the chain of, of human smuggling. Laura, this is, it's just appalling because I can only conclude that the President of the United States and this administration is purposefully breaking the law. You'd like to think that this country is a country of laws and that upholding the law is the President's job, but it looks like to me they're breaking the law. What are your thoughts? Absolutely. And uh, he swore to uphold the Constitution to yeah. protect American citizens and that includes acting like a sovereign nation and securing the border and putting Americans first. And he's simply not doing that. They're putting illegal immigrants first. And what they need to do is to enforce the laws on the books, to return to those effective programs that were in place when he came into office, and to prevent illegal immigration rather than just process it in and then make the Americans pay for it um, with, with our tax money. Um, and one, one other item I would caution is there are bills that are being written and introduced in Congress uh, that have some bipartisan support. It is very important that Republicans not just throw money at this issue. Uh, the Biden administration is trying to become better and faster at processing all these illegal immigrants into the country. Mm -hmm. And if Republicans just give them money to do it, then the Democrats will achieve their goal. Instead, they, Republicans need to demand that this administration enforce the laws and reinstate programs like Remain in Mexico and true agreements with the Northern Triangle countries yeah. uh, to take back their nationals. Uh, in juxtaposition to what the Biden administration is doing, right? how would you uh, assess President Trump's uh, program in terms of uh, securing the border? Uh, and was it, would that be a proper model for the Biden administration to follow? Definitely. 
we faced a border crisis in 2019 where we saw uh, very large numbers of family units and unaccompanied children crossing the border. And Congress refused to close the loopholes that Congress itself created uh, to stop that crisis. In fact, many, like Nancy Pelosi, refused to admit there even was a crisis back then. Mm -hmm. So the Trump administration stood up the Remain in Mexico program, which basically called the bluff of illegal immigrants who were coming to abuse the asylum system and said, you can apply for asylum, but you're not going to be released into the U.S. You have to wait on the Mexican side of the border. And it worked very quickly. The caravan stopped and uh, migrants did not come and um, continue to seek asylum when they knew they didn't have a valid claim. Yeah. He also used U.S. leverage with con the country Mexico, Guatemala, Honduras, and El Salvador and said, if you want to continue to get foreign aid or not get tariffed, then you're going to cooperate with us in terms of immigration. And yeah. they started enforcing their own borders and taking foreign nationals back and building up their own respective asylum systems, which everyone should be for. I mean, right. It's Laura, good you, to have more countries with yeah. asylum systems. All right. Laura Reese, again, a Senior Research Fellow at the Heritage Foundation. I genuinely appreciate you coming on the show, Laura. Thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, Bob, for having me. You're my pleasure indeed. All right, coming up, I'm expecting a call from Dr. Susan Wilson from Africa. She's with the To My Knee Fund. We're going to be finding out about that, that and more, right here in the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. Stay tuned for more of the Bob Harden Show here on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. The dining scene in Naples is among the nation's finest. Get a first-hand experience with Naples Culinary Walks. Join a guided food walk with a terrific guide in a small group through elegant Naples neighborhoods known for destination restaurants. In three hours, you'll stop for small plates on your chosen tour. Dining walk choices include morning, afternoon, and evening offerings on 5th Avenue South, Downtown 3rd Street, Waterside, Galleria Shops at Vanderbilt, and more. Prices begin at only $46 a person, depending on the tour you select. To find out more and to make a reservation, visit NaplesCulinaryWalks.com. That's NaplesCulinaryWalks.com for a great value and a terrific dining experience. Do you have an extra auto you'd like to donate to charity? Maximize your tax deduction, support your favorite charity, and help a local child in need by calling Naples Auto Donation Center. Naples Auto Donation Center is a not-for-profit licensed car dealer. Just call NADC at 692-9840 and they'll take it from there. You get a properly documented tax deduction for whatever the vehicle actually sells for. Your designated beneficiary charity gets half the profit after fix-up costs and the net revenue generated by NADC goes to Friends of Foster Children to provide tutoring and other enrichment activities for foster children the government doesn't provide. And NADC is also one of the few places in Collier County that sells inexpensive cars that actually run to folks who would otherwise not be able to afford one. It's a real win-win. Call Naples Auto Donation Center at 692-9840 or visit the website NADC kids.com you'll be glad you did welcome back to the bob harton show and now here's your host bob harton thank you so much for joining us here on the show we have with us dr susan wilson she is the founder of the two my knee fund uh dr wilson thank you so much for joining us Oh, it's always a pleasure, Bob. It's really always nice to hear your voice, although this time I'm the other side of the pond. Usually I'm over in beautiful Naples, but at the moment I'm in my clinic room, actually. So any moment when the receptionist might knock on the door or a, a patient might kind of come in, but hopefully we've got time to have a quick chat. Absolutely, uh, Dr. Wilson. So uh, I just think uh, the work that you do is so impressive and so important 25,000 uh, orphans in Tanzania, in the Kangara section of uh, Tanzania. Uh, maybe you could just give us some background on the Two Mighty Fund and what you do. Yeah, well, um, as, as you know, Bob, and just, just for your listeners, um, my husband and I are both medical doctors, and we went to work in a mission hospital in Tanzania in 2001. 
at that time, um, they, they were just recovering from the genocides that had happened in Rwanda and Burundi, which are countries just bordering on this region of Tanzania. And when the men who'd lost the civil wars in those countries were driven over the border, unfortunately, they, they attacked women and the girls and they gave them HIV AIDS. The AIDS was very low in Kagira before that. That's the region that we work in, about the size of southwest Florida. Um, and they, and, and it was only 2.8% of the population, which is small by African standards, and you could get it from a blood transfusion. Mm-hmm. But after all this attack and all the, the, the pain and suffering the women went through, it went up to 28%. Mm. So my husband and I um, realized when we were delivering babies in the delivery suite that probably every third woman that we delivered had AIDS. There was no AIDS treatment in this area at that time. So she was dying and the baby had a, a one in three chance of having AIDS already um, if the, at the time of birth. And then if the mum fed the baby beyond six months, um, the baby doubled that risk. So it was really awful. And we reckoned there were, um, well, up to 200,000 orphans in this area. Mm. So anyway, it wasn't something that I planned to do. I planned to involve one of the big charities, but they're all very well organized. And they had five-year plans, and they said, well, we're very sympathetic, um, but, you know, um, come to us in two or three years' time, and we'll think about it for the next five-year plan. And as a mum myself of four, four boys, now men, um, I thought, well, these children, I mean, they are so poor. You know, the average subsistence farmer there maybe earns $150 in a year mm. to look after six to eight families. So that's when people have a mum and a dad. That's the kind of money that they have because they just eat what they grow. They have very little cash. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then the children then sort of had nothing. So anyway, came back and um, asked some friends to get involved. I thought maybe we would support 30 or so ch- children through their education. And now I've got a great pleasure to tell you, it's not 25,000 now. We actually um, did an audit of how many children we're supporting last year. We're supporting 50,000 orphans. Oh, my goodness. Unbelievable. Um, we've got 11,000 in secondary school, um, 20,000 in elementary school. So that takes us up to about 31,000. And the other ones we've got in university, colleges, vocational training schools. Some of them have left um, education but are still under 18. And, of course, some are infants um, and little ones before they go to school age seven. So that's the, so, so we, uh, the main thing is that we provide... Uh, Bob, can you hear me? Am I, I speaking loud enough? No, you're, you're, uh, you're doing just fine. Thank you. Is that okay? Oh, lovely, because I'm the other side of the pond. Maybe I have to shout a bit louder. <laughs> no, we're but, coming um, through fine. <laughs> lovely. Okay, thank you. So, um, yeah, so, so the main thing I think we provide for these children is to enable them to go to school. Yeah. That they're so poor. Well, we put them in a secure home. So, um, if, you know, if they're on their own, we find a family member, an aunt or a grandparent, we place them with them and we support that family or they would stay with a family friend or, um, so they're not in orphanages at all. Um, or, or if they're a child, they could be a child-headed family. If the oldest child is 16 and has looked after his brothers and sisters for four or five years, he doesn't want another adult involved. So we support those children through a network of um, parish workers who are uh, men and women who live in that area. They cover three or four villages and they go and visit the families to see they're okay. Um, And um, if there's any problems, the children can come to them to get help. And then we support the children through school from nursery school, elementary school, um, secondary school. We're just in the middle of delivering lots and lots of um, exercise books that these kids couldn't afford so they would not be able to continue at school it's um 10 books per child and they're about a dollar each so it's about ten dollars per child but if you remember what i told you we have eleven thousand children in secondary school so if you multiply that by 10 and do the math you see that we really need an awful lot of money um to get this program completed but we're just about through it now for the year which is wonderful um and then we have vocational training schools 
teaching the children carpentry and tailoring, the ones that um, are no longer able to continue in education because they failed exams. We do projects to um, help the, the, the women, the widows and the grandparents to, to do better farming, to have fish ponds, We've done ir- irrigation projects. And <clears throat> to Money Fund USA have just been wonderful and have provided so much. In the last year, um, to Money Fund USA have enabled us to build 23 decent houses for for people, orphans who are either homeless or living in a terribly right. derelict place that let in water and mud. Right. So, um, doc- Dr. Three houses. Dr. Wilson and 25 wells. Yeah, I want to make yeah. So uh, yeah, everything with wells and we're talking about you know helping kids get them a bicycle so they can get to school and get a uniform that they otherwise wouldn't be able to afford. So you're doing wonderful work, and I want to make sure we leave time to talk about this very important event coming up on Sunday night. Now, right now, there's a silent auction going on. You can go to to tumineefundusa.org. T-U-M-A-I-N-I-F-U-N-D-U-S-A.org. I hope you will visit the website. Uh, first of all, that will give you a great opportunity to even get more background information on this wonderful effort by Dr. Susan Wilson and her husband. But also, at 5 o'clock, 5 to 6 p.m. on Sunday evening, you'll be able to participate in a live event featuring Dr. Susan Wilson. And uh, <laughs> this is just so important because... Yeah, this you can tell. Just be able to get five or ten dollars. Uh, th- this does so much to help a child get the books they need to get educated. Uh, doing some wonderful things for these very peaceful and wonderful people in Tanzania, yeah. in the Kangara uh, section of Tanzania. So, Dr. Wilson, any comments or thoughts? Well, I just want to thank the the, the folk in Naples, the Tumani Fund team in Naples, who've worked so hard. I'm sure your listeners understand that it's been a really hard year to fundraise when we've all been kind of locked down or not going places. And Mm -hmm. we're not able to have our normal normal gala, but they have worked so hard um, to to provide this event. And it's only an hour, as you say, from five till six on Sunday, and it's free to register and just to see what's going on. But then we hope people will kind of want to support things, but... But the team of it would be so lovely if your listeners would get involved, register, and and be there on Sunday to just share with the the, the wonderful Americans that I have the privilege of working with in Naples. Yeah, I mean this. Uh, I think it's the Church on the Cove, and I've forgotten the name of the church, but. Uh uh, is yeah, it's Trinity, Trinity by the Cove. Trinity by the Cove, thank you for that. And so they've embraced mm. this activity, embraced the support of this, and it's now just expanded throughout the southwest Florida. And uh, I just want to encourage our listeners to be part of this. It's so important. The work is so important. I'll be sending a check and participating. I look forward to, and again, it's uh, please write this down, to Maynee. And by the way, to Maynee, as I recall, is a word for hope, if I'm not mistaken. Exactly. I like your Swahili. It's good, Bob. <laughs> Thank you, Dr. Wilson. T-U-M-A-I-N-I-F-U-N-D-U-S-A dot org. What a great event. What a great cause. And uh, I just really appreciate, Dr. Wilson, your coming on the show. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. I'll get back to my patients now. Thank you very much, Bob, and I hope to speak to you next year. Absolutely. Thank you, Dr. Wilson. Well, she's an angel. She and her husband, they're just doing unbelievable work. 50,000 orphans in, uh, in Africa, in this Kagera uh, section of Tanzania. Very peaceful people. And all this problem was created because uh, war, uh, men were driven because of war into uh, their area, and they ended up uh, raping the women, creating an AIDS epidemic, and uh, all these orphans. So, in any event, that's a wrap here on today's show. I hope you enjoyed it. On Monday, we'll visit with Mark Schulman, the founder and publisher of HistoryCenter.com. As usual, we'll be talking about current world events. We'll also visit with Jim McTagg, former Barron's Washington Bureau Chief and author of a couple of great murder mysteries, Follow the Leader, and its sequel, Shake the Money Tree. I always appreciate your comments on the show. You can send me an email at bobharden at hotmail.com, bobharden at hotmail.com. You can also sign up uh, to be on the distribution list for the newsletter that I send out uh, after each show. I hope you make it a great day and weekend on the Paradise Coast or wherever you are. Namaste.
Thanks so much for listening to the Bob Harden Show on the Bob Harden Broadcasting Network. For more information and audio files of previous shows, visit www.bobharden.com. <laughs>